Pediatric Trauma, Part 1. The objectives for Part 1 will include epidemiology and the approach of the pediatric trauma patient. In Part 2, we'll talk about abdominal trauma, cardiothoracic trauma, uh, fractures of the extremities, facial trauma. We'll go into light detail on ophthalmic injuries, spinal cord injury. You will note that there are separate lectures or video recordings for thermal injuries as well as traumatic brain injury. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder is in the chapter. I want you to read up on it. I did not include this into the actual voiceover lecture, but it's a very, very short section within the, the, the readings, um, and I think it's very self-explanatory. So looking at the epidemiology of pediatric trauma, we know that it's the leading cause of death in children less than one year of age. We also know that 40% are unintentional injuries between the ages of one year to 19 years of age. Nine million children each year are treated for these injuries um, and 225,000 admissions to hospitals based on these injuries. This graph came directly from the textbook and I like the the, the the representation that's on here, because this includes both males and females from, from zero age, like from newborn all the way up to 19 years of age. And you could see in the very beginning, um, the younger children, there is a higher incidence of trauma. But then as they move into their school age years, between f- ages five to nine, there, it's, it starts to drop off and it starts to pick up a little bit when they're 10 to 14. But then that high risk behavior that teenagers tend to have shoots up dramatically. So this has a U-shape form to the graph where the very young or vulnerable, they're, they're, uh, there are issues and injuries that they can be, that they can have fatalities from, but that tends to level off as the child gets a little bit older. And as they approach their teenage years, it starts to ramp up a little bit. But once they become teenagers or once they're around 15 to 19 years of age, that high risk behavior really kicks in. I like these two graphs because it does a nice contrast and comparison of all states um, within the United States. On the on the left of your screen, you're going to see the unintentional injury representation from from newborns all the way up to 19 years of age. And you'll see that the crude rate within the United States is about 10.32. So that's unintentional injuries. And then on on the right side of the screen, you're going to see violence related injuries. Um. From, from, again, same age representation, both sexes, uh, and again, across the country. And I, when I looked at this, I was pretty impressed with the, the incidence of, of unintentional injury versus violent-related injuries. And like, look in Florida, you know, we, are, we have a, a pretty high rate of unintentional injuries. But when you compare that to violent injuries or violent-related injuries, it's uh, pretty low or much lower in comparison. And then you look at states like New York, you know, it's low in both, both categories. Um, and some of the states that I wouldn't really expect to have such a high incidence um, is like, you know, states like Colorado, Montana, um, they have a pretty high uh, incident rate. So it's just something to, to look at. I thought it was pretty interesting when it, when it was shown in the book. Um, when we look at the leading causes of death by age group for unintentional you know, less than one year of age, suffocation is is pretty high on the list. Um, unintentional drowning for some of these smaller toddlers 
<clears throat> when we look at children that are much older, motor vehicle accident tends to be the leading cause of deaths of unintentional. And for violence, you know, homicide, firearm um, tend to be pretty high, you know, for the younger age kids. But suicide plays a huge part from the ages of 10 to 14. Um, and then firearms tend to be, again, much higher for violent related in, um, injuries. Our approach to the pediatric patient involves a primary and secondary survey. And if anyone's ever taken ETLS or ENPC, which is the Emergency Nurse Pediatric Certification, you'll notice that they, they, they really focus in on a primary and secondary survey because it's so crucial when you bring these patients into the trauma center or into your emergency room. You also want to take a closer look at their cardiovascular and thoracic region as well as their abdominal region. So for the initial assessment, um, your primary survey is pretty quick, right? It's, it, it, you're going to you know, look over the patient. You prepare your emergency room so you get a call in that there's a trauma coming in. So you're going to prepare your trauma rooms for, for whatever age group patient that you're bringing in. You're going to want to triage them. So if you have multiple patients in a motor vehicle accident or if there's a, uh, an incident where there's a lot of patients coming in at one time, you have to triage them appropriately and put them in places that are going to give them the highest chance of survival or the highest chance of treatment. You're going to include your primary sur or survey. You're going to start your resuscitation methods, uh, your, your measures. And then you will continue doing additional primary. So you want to make sure that you're looking at the most obvious injuries, the most obvious problems for your patient in the primary survey before moving into the secondary survey. Your secondary survey is going to allow you to take a more detailed look at each body system going from head to toe to see if there's uh, injuries or if there's signs of internal injuries that you need to be aware of. So your, your secondary survey is going to be more detailed and more more. Um, global looking at everything that's going on with your patient. And again, you're going to continue your, your post-resuscitation measures as well as monitoring and reevaluation. So when we look at our um, preparation, we have pre-hospital management. So if the child is involved in a motor vehicle accident, your first responders to those scenes typically tend to be police officers, or you will then get your paramedics on scene so sometimes your initial resuscitation is started by someone who's been trained as a first responder, and then your paramedic unit will get there to help stabilize the patient and they bring them to the hospital for your hospital management. And again, your triage is going to allow you to sort people by injury, and you're going to sort them by severity and resources. So if you have a mass casualty, you're going to need to look to see who has the highest chance of survival and, and apply them to the most appropriate place. And you're also going to look at the person that's the most crucially ill. So if you have someone that has CPR in progress, they may take priority going straight to a resuscitation room over someone that might have a laceration or a broken arm. But again, you need to triage them appropriately. And triage is that continuous assessment. So someone may triage as like a non-urgent patient initially, but then if their condition deteriorates, and I'll give you a perfect example, a child with a head injury comes in with a Glasgow Coma score of 15, he's talking to you, he's cooperative, but you're going to have to reassess him because if he has an epidural bleed, he may have changes in his Glasgow Coma score and he may have changes in his condition that may warrant him to be re-triaged or reprioritized. When we look at our initial assessment, the textbook shows you the triangle of uh, resuscitation here. You have your appearance. Your, your work of breathing and your circulation to the skin. So you're going to, again, always, 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 your first priority is going to be your ABCs. And with traumas, it, they go a little bit further. So it's A, B, C, D, and E. So you're going to look at your airway, breathing, circulation, your disability. So that's your a good neuro exam. 
You know, is your patient altered mental status? They have a loss of consciousness. They're lethargic, uptunded. Are they wide awake talking to you? And then one thing we always have to keep on our assessment is their temperature, right? Are there, is there some type of exposure? Are they developing in a hyperthermic injury, a hypothermic injury? Are they soaking wet? Are they in some kind of solution that needs to be taken away? Like, are, you know, was there gasoline on the scene and now their clothes are, are drenched in gasoline? So those are things that you're going to want to pay close attention to when you get them in with their primary survey. Again, with your primary survey, you know, looking at our ABCs, when you when you talk about airway, you want to include C-spine protection. So you're going to want to make sure someone is holding C-spine precautions when you're turning them, when you're opening their mouth, when you're looking for their breathing status and all those things. When we talk about breathing, we also want to make sure there's good ventilation, right? So do they need to be put on a ventilator and intubated, right? Are, we, are they able to take in good, um, do they have good gas exchange? Is there, you know, when we look at circulation, is there obvious signs of bleeding? Is there, you know, a, a large laceration on their leg that needs to have pressure applied or say a tourniquet or something there to control that bleeding until you can get that, that, that injury repaired? And again, your disability, your neurostatus are all super important in your, in your exposure. When we look at the airway, we definitely, like I've, I've said this multiple times and I, I I, don't, I, I definitely want to drill this in. If their Glasgow score, Glasgow coma score drops below eight, you have to protect their airway and intubate them. And that Glasgow coma score is going to be a continuous assessment and reassessment. When we look at their airway, if you have to open the airway for any reason, you're going to have to do that jaw thrust while maintaining cervical spine stabilization. So oftentimes the best way to achieve this is to put have someone hold traction on the neck to make sure that your, your C-spine is, is in alignment and that it's stabilized. And then a second person will come in to help open the airway with the jaw thrust. Or if they're putting in an oral airway or pharyngeal, uh, nasal pharyngeal airway, that they're doing that. So you get multiple people involved. You don't want to try to do all this by yourself. Again, we want to make sure there's good oxygenation and ventilation, and that's where our airway adjuncts will come in. Do we need to put them on BiPAP, CPAP, intubate them? You want to inspect their, their uh, and you, you know, you're going to do a quick evaluation of their airway status, and you want to you know, be aware of potential thoracic injuries that could be life-threatening, such as a pneumothorax, a tension pneumothorax, a hemothorax, flail chest. You know, if someone has a penetrating wound to their chest, you want to evaluate that first to make sure you're not missing something. Um, so you definitely want to stabilize those injuries. For circulation, again, you want to look for obvious signs of blood loss. Is there any loss of consciousness? Is the, is the patient pale, gray? Do you have good pulses to all your extremities? Um, and then if you need to control the bleeding, you're, you're going to want to apply direct pressure. With your disability, this is a rapid neurological evaluation. Your Glasgow Coma Score is quick and easy, right? The book talks about your AVPU neurological assessment, and that's is the patient alert? Are they verbal to uh, are they responsive to stimulation with verbal response, or are they responding to stimulation from painful response, or are they just unresponsive? So that's again a very quick way of measuring their disability. Pupillary size and reaction is also important, but remember, pupillary change is a late sign of any type of um, internal uh, traumatic brain injury. So you definitely want to check that just to kind of see where you're at with your patient's injuries. You want to assess their motor and sensory functions as well, but you don't want to go into great detail during your primary survey 
because on your secondary survey, you're going to go into more detail on, on, on your assessment. Again, this exposure, remove the clothing quickly or anything that could be um, like if they're wet or if there's you know, substance on the clothes, you want to get that off. You want to maintain their body temperature. So that means you're going to have to prevent hypothermia. If they're hot, if they come in with a, a heat injury, you're going to want to make sure you're able to apply uh, temperature cooling. And you want to avoid any rapid changes in temperature. And you also want to be cognizant of your child's age. You know, newborns cannot regulate their own temperature. So even if they don't have a significant trauma injury, you still want to make sure that they are, are, are bundled up or you have some way to keep them um, from getting too hot or too cold. So final additions to your primary survey are going to include placing the patient on a monitor, right? So you're going to get your, your ECG tracing, you'll get your vital signs, you'll be able to get a pulse ox. If you need to put in a Foley or an NG tube, you can do that rapidly. Um, and then usually all these things are happening at the same time. So usually in a trauma bay, you're going to have several nurses, several techs, several RTs, docs, radio, um, x-ray techs that are there ready to do some of these things. So the, you do all these things at once. Now, moving into your secondary survey, this is where you're going to do, it's going to, it's going to begin at the end of your primary survey and your primary survey. Again, remember you're looking for life saving injuries or measures that you need to complete so that you can then go further in your evaluation. Then you're going to do your complete head to toe. This is where you're going to lay hands on the patient and you're going to be assessing for bumps, uh, scrapes, bruises, broken bones, crepitus, all these different type of assessments. And they're also going to get a complete history, right? You're going to want to know what happened. You know, can the patient talk to you so you can ask more questions while you're examining them? And then it's going to require frequent reassessments, specifically if there are injuries that can progress and become much worse. Your pre-hospital providers, when they collect their history, they like to use this um, MIVIT, which is mechanism of injury, injuries that are obvious that we can see your vital signs in the treatment. So when you get these patients in, these are the questions you want to ask your pre-hospital providers, your paramedics, your police officers, anyone that was on the scene caring for the patient. And then when you're getting your history, you want to get your ample history. And any, if anyone's ever taken PALS, this is, this is included in your PALS assessment. So you want to know quickly, you know, do you have any allergies? Are you taking any current medications? What is your past medical history? You know, do you have asthma, diabetes, cardiac conditions, right? You want to know these things as you're treating the patient. And the P also, you know, you want to know, is this patient pregnant, right? So, you know, if someone knows that they're pregnant, you want to know that you're taking care of two patients now, not just one. You want to know the last time they've had something to eat. So if this patient needs to go to the operating room, it's very important for anesthesia to know the last time they've had anything in their stomach. And then um, any events that, that, that um, are related to the injury. Exactly what happened, you know, were you in a car accident? Were you hit from the back, from the side? Did you hit a, you know, were you going at a fast rate and hit a tree? You know, was, you know, I remember one time we had a patient come in with a very small um, laceration on his chest and he didn't speak English and he was very confused. And for a good few minutes while we're doing our primary survey, we didn't know what this laceration was from. And we found out later from the paramedics that he was, you know, he was stabbed in the chest with a screwdriver. And so even though the injury looked kind of small on the outside service, it actually tore his mammary artery. And we ended up having to rush that patient to the operating room. So you always have to kind of ask questions and be very curious during this um, assessment time. When you're, when you're doing your head exam, you're going to inspect the skin, the skull, the hair. Is there hair missing? 
Are there, you know, uh, open lacerations or, you know, crepitus when you're feeling the skull? You're going to look for battle sign. Battle sign is where you have bruising around the mastoid area behind the ear. Um, and that can, you know, be representative of a basal skull fracture. If you have raccoon's eyes, um, you know, if they have, you know, bilateral um, bruising under the eyes, that could also, you know, indicate a basal skull fracture. Again, you want to palpate the face looking for any type of tenderness, pain, crepitus, deformities, those kind of things. Again, these patients, if they've been in a significant accident, they should have their C-spine immobilized until we can prove that everything is stable and, and okay. Um, the chest, you want to palpate the chest. So you want to put your hands on both sides of the chest. You want to see if there's any um, give on the sternum. Are there any broken ribs? Are there any penetrating injuries? Um, those kind of things. You want to look at the abdomen. Is it soft, supple, um, non-distended, or is it hard and rigid? Are there any bruising on the abdomen, such as a seatbelt sign? Seatbelt sign will be bruising ac across the, the shoulder and chest down into the abdomen um, where their seatbelt was. You want to look to see if there's any uh, br bruising on the flank, such as Gray Turner sign. You want to look for those things as you're assessing your patients. Um, again, with your exam, as you're moving down, you want to check the pelvis to see if there's stability in the pelvic girdle. You want to open or take off their clothes. You want to look at their uh, perineal area and their rectal area. Is there rectal bleeding? Is there vaginal bleeding? Is there bleeding coming from the penis or the genitalia? Um, you want to look for those kind of injuries. And you don't want to put a Foley in if you're if there's concern for some type of bladder injury or any type of injury to the area in which you would put the 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 Foley. Um, again, this would require a digital rectal exam to make sure that there's no penetrating injuries or any tears or rips and stuff like that. You want to log roll the patient and inspect their back. You want to palpate down their spine and look to feel for any deformities or any crepitus. And then lastly, you're going to do that complete neurological exam. So now you want them to be able to follow commands. You want them to squeeze your hands to see if they have good grip strength. Can they lift their extremities off the bed so against gravity? Do they have good uh, range of motion? Are they able to bend their knees on their own or they can't? Can they you know, rotate their ankles? Can they wiggle their, their fingers and toes? You kind of want to go into all that deep sensory motor type of assessment. You can assess your cranial nerves at this point as well. Additions that come with the secondary survey include all your, your x-rays. If you need to go for scanning, such as CT scan, MRI, angiography, this would be the time that we'd, we would do that during the secondary survey. All right, this completes part one. Very short and sweet, right to the point. I'll see you for part two.